to open up this passage where we're going, uh, I want you to think about some times when someone has an action that they urgently need to take, an action that it's absolutely crucial that they take. Think about, here's a couple examples. Let's say that you're a soldier heading into combat. Think of how urgent it would be that you take your gun. Obvious, right? Or imagine that you're going to go scuba diving. Think of how urgent it is that you fill your tanks with air. Or imagine that you are going to jump out of a plane. Think of how urgent it would be to put on your parachute, right? Urgent actions, actions that would be absolutely crucial for people to take. Now, the reason I mention that is because in today's passage, Jesus is going to call us to take an action that is far more urgent than any of those. More urgent than the soldier taking his gun into battle? Absolutely. More urgent than having air in your tank when you're scuba diving? Definitely. More urgent than putting on your parachute and your jump out of a plane? No doubt about it. An action that is absolutely urgent that we each take. So what is that action? What does it mean to take it? Let's look at Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. Powerful, powerful passage. Start with verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Horrible tragedy here he's des they're describing. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the, the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay, this passage starts off with some people coming to Jesus and describing to him a horrifying tragedy that had taken place. They want to hear Jesus' opinion about this tragedy. And Jesus answers by describing to them an urgent action that they need to take. So let's start by asking what urgent action does Jesus tell them and us to take? Read verse 1 again. There were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood 
Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, this is a terrifying thing to think about. Here's what's happening. Some Jews from Galilee were offering sacrifices, and Pilate, who was the Roman governor, slaughtered them, butchered them. Their blood was mingled with the animal sacrifices. They were all killed. Terrible event. And so the people wanted to say, Jesus, did you hear about this? What do you think about this, Jesus? And look at how Jesus answers in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So these people are thinking that every time someone suffers in some terrible way, it's because they've sinned in some terrible way. That's what these people are are thinking, that if someone was slaughtered by Pilate, then surely this person must have committed some horrible sin. And that's why Jesus asks them, now do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way. And and look at Jesus' answer in verse 3. No. Jesus says, no, that's not right. No, I tell you. The reason these Galileans suffered more than others was not because they had sinned more than any others. Okay, now let, let's, let's think about this a little bit more. Let's try to think through. What does the Bible teach about suffering? Aren't there times in the Bible when God punishes people because they've sinned? And the answer is yes. There are times when that happens. I mean, think about Exodus chapter 7. When God brought the plagues upon Egypt because Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Or think about Gehazi, who was Elisha's servant in 2 Kings chapter 5, who when he lied about having taken money, he was covered with leprosy all of a sudden. Or New Testament, think about Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to God and they were both killed. So there are times when God does punish people in this life because of their their sin. But that's not always the case. For example, there are times when God brings trials to His people, and I think this is every time one of His people suffers, He brings a a trial to one of His people because through that trial, He's going to bring us an even greater closeness with him, an even greater experience of his grace and his nearness. That's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about his thorn in the flesh. So that's, that's another reason for why God brings trials. Ben prayed about this scripture earlier, but God also will bring trials to us because as we set our hearts upon him through that and fight the fight of faith, that trial is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Also, sometimes the purpose of trial, remember John chapter 9, where the blind man, there's a man blind from birth, and Jesus says this was for the glory of God, and God had allowed that blindness to come because of how he would be glorified through healing that man from his blindness. But now here in Luke 13, Jesus is going to teach us another purpose for suffering. Here's a different purpose for suffering in this passage. Now remember, Jesus 
listeners, those around him, thought that these Galileans suffered so much because they had sinned so much. And believing that would also lead you to believe that because I haven't suffered very much, then that must mean I haven't sinned very much, right? This is what was in their minds. Their lack of suffering, their relative lack of suffering, showed that they must, have been, must be pretty good people. But that's not the case. That's blindness. That's fog. Satanic, deceiving fog. And Jesus' words are going to blow that fog away. He, he loves them too much. He loves us too much to let us be deceived. So look again at what Jesus says in verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the Galileans' suffering does not show that the Galileans had suffered, had, had sinned more than anybody else. But it does show, what does it show? Their suffering does show what the Galileans and all of us deserve because of our sin. That's what this suffering shows, what the Galileans and every human being deserves because of our sin. So here's another reason that God allows suffering to come. It's the mercy of God to help us wake up to, to remind us of what we all deserve for our sins so that we will do something about that. Now, Jesus knew this would sound shocking, and so he, he brings up his own illustration of some terrible suffering. Verses 4 and 5, look at what he says. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So Siloam was a neighborhood in the southern part of, of Jerusalem. Here's a picture. That's, that's kind of how archaeologists have reconstructed what Jerusalem looked like. This is around AD 66, which is later than this. But that circled area, that's the, that's the area of Siloam. That's where the tower would have been, right there. And there was a tower there that one day fell, collapsed, and tragically killed 18 people. And so Jesus raises the same question. Is the reason that these 18 were killed because they had sinned more than anybody else in Jerusalem? And Jesus gives the exact same answer. Compare verses 3 and 5. Here's what he says in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this tragedy was not because those 18 had sinned more than anybody else. But Jesus says that this tragedy should help us see what we all deserve because of our sin so that we will repent. We'll take heed and repent. If we don't repent, we will all likewise perish. Now, what does that word likewise mean? I'm sure you've been thinking about that, those of you who've been studying this passage this week and discussing in our home groups. What does that word likewise mean? If we don't repent, we will all likewise perish. It can't mean that if we don't repent, we will all be slain by Pilate or have a tower fall on us, obviously, right? Can't mean likewise in that way. Or, does that make sense? Yes, I hope it does. Okay. It also can't mean that if we don't repent, then um, we will... How did I wrote down here? Sorry. If we don't repent... 
it can't mean that if we don't repent, then we will die physically. Then we will die physically because we're all going to die physically, whether we repent or not. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> you already got that one, right? Okay, good. So it can't mean that a tower is going to fall on us or that Pilate's going to slaughter us, or it can't mean that, that if we don't repent, we're going to die because we're, going to, we're all going to die whether we repent or not. So what does it mean? What does it mean? It's only one other possibility. And it's what Jesus talks about throughout the Gospels. It's that if we don't repent, then we will all face God's judgment in hell forever. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We've all sinned so much that unless we repent, we will face judgment in hell forever. Now, just pause for a second. Don't let this make you think that Jesus is unloving, talking about hell and talking about repentance, talking about judgment the way that he does. Listen, nobody loves us more than Jesus Christ does. It's not even close. There's no close second. No one loves us more than Jesus Christ does. And that's why Jesus warns us about hell. It's because he loves us so much. He loves us, and so he warns us, I don't want any of you to go to hell, so repent. That's what's going to happen to you. Something as awful as that forever is what's going to happen to you unless you repent. I don't want any of you to repent. It would be unloving if Jesus didn't speak so bluntly and clearly and boldly. It's because he loves us. I mean, don't ever doubt that Jesus loves us. How can you think that the God-man who set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what he was going to experience there, who suffered on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins, that's love. That's unmatched compassion and mercy. And flowing out of that unmatched compassion and mercy is Jesus who says, no, I tell you, but unless you all repent, you will all perish. Unless you repent, you will perish. It's spoken out of a heart full of love and compassion. So Jesus is saying very clearly, we've all sinned so much that unless we repent, we will face hell forever. Now, that's not something that our culture tells us. Our culture would say, come on, you've got to be more positive than that. You know, you've got to be more upbeat than that. Well, I love being positive and upbeat, but we need to be truthful at the same time. But it, it's, it's easy for us to wonder, is that really true? Have, have we really sinned that much? I mean, yes, I, I, you know, I lose my patience sometimes, and I get angry at some drivers sometimes, and, you know, snip at people sometimes and things that I say, right? But I mean, is, is it really true that I'm, I'm that bad? I mean, aren't, aren't, aren't most of us like, you know, mostly good? What does the Bible say? Oh, God loves us. He wants, he wants to blow fog out of the picture. And, a, and a, a fog-blowing passage when it comes to our sinfulness is found in Romans chapter 3. This is what Jesus has in his mind because he inspired Paul to write these words. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, what Paul says here about us. He's quoting from the Old Testament, and he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So how many are righteous? None. 
None. What? That's, that's like a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Absolutely strong. None. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Let, let the truth of the words blow the fog out of our minds. Paul says, no one is good. Not me, not you, no one. Now, how can he say that? Well, think about it like this. God is flawlessly good. God is perfect, perfectly loving, amazing in his compassion, God is the all-satisfying joy of the universe. And God promises us, He has promised us in His Word that fullness of joy is only found in Him. He created us so we could have that joy of knowing Him. And so when we see who God is and what He's promised us, we have every reason to seek our joy in Him. Every reason. But instead of doing that, like Paul says, we've all turned aside. We, we've turned our backs on God, which means that we're declaring that God's promise about joy, it's a lie. And we're declaring that sin's joys are greater than Him for sure. Whenever we turn from God and walk our own way, we're saying that His promises are a lie and that sin's joys are greater than the joys of Him. I mean, think, well, that's kind of a strong statement. I mean, haven't we done anything good? I mean, didn't, like, didn't we, before we were saved, didn't we ever give like, money to charity or anything like that? And we did. Before we were saved, we, we did acts of kindness. We, we gave to, to charity. But it wasn't because we were seeking God. I mean, think back in your mind when you, when you did something like that. Why did you do it? Was it because you wanted more joy in God? I don't think so. Thinking back about me, it was because I wanted to feel good about myself, because I didn't want to feel guilty. It's because maybe I wanted to impress my friends, or maybe I thought if I did this, God wouldn't punish me as, as bad. But I wasn't doing it because I wanted more of God. It wasn't from love for God and for joy in God. It was all about me. It wasn't because I trusted Him, loved Him, and sought my joy in Him. And so, just let, let this just settle on your heart. Before you were saved, before you put your trust in Jesus and He saved you, none of us did anything good because good is Godward. Anything that's not Godward isn't good. That's what Paul is saying. And that's why Jesus says what He does in Luke 13, 5. That's the background for this. Look at that again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's another reason for why God allows suffering. It's so that these tragedies, these sufferings will remind us of what we all deserve so that we will be motivated to repent. So you hear about a typhoon hitting the Philippines, and we should think, oh, that's what I deserve forever. I need to repent 
or you hear about a hurricane coming into, into Florida. That's what I deserve. Or you, a tsunami hitting Indonesia or whatever it might be. That's what I deserve. These are loving warnings from God. That's what I deserve. Am I repenting? That's what Jesus in his love wants us to feel and understand here. He wants us to repent. That's why these reminders are there. Because when we repent, our repentance, we're turning from sin, we're trusting Jesus, that connects us to Jesus' death on the cross, which means all of our sins are forgiven from that, that moment. At that moment when you first repent, all your past sins, forgiven. Like just wiped off the books. All your future sins, look at, look at that. forgiven. Wiped off those books. Your present sins, none of us are sinless this morning here in, in this room. All of our present sins, forgiven. It's forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Now just think about it. If you've got the past covered, and you've got the present covered, and you've got the future covered, you are covered. And that's what Jesus does. When you put your trust in Jesus, his death on the cross paid for all of your sins. So never again do you have any fear of punishment. Just like we, Chantal read that verse, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation means none. And so you look ahead to your future, starting today, looking ahead next year, 10 years, eternity, Never will you ever know anything of God's punishment. All you will know is God's love and God's care and God's goodness and God's joy now and forever. You've got an amazing future before you because of Christ's death on the cross. That's why Jesus is here saying, repent. Look at, look at your sin. Repent. No, it's not because these people sinned more than they suffered. You, you're all going to suffer unless you repent, and I want you to repent. So repent of your sins. That's Jesus' heart here. So what does it mean to repent? Let's get a little, bit more, a little more clear on that. And Jesus does not tell us in this passage, but I thought it was crucial since that's such a big point here. So I'm pulling in from other different scriptures. Let me give you four aspects of repentance. Four different parts of repentance. First of all, we must see the glory of of God in Jesus Christ. We must see the glory of Jesus. It all starts here. God's glory shines through Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the book of Hebrews tells us. And in the Bible, we see the glory of God's love in Jesus, God's wisdom in Jesus, God's compassion in Jesus, God's justice, God's power, we see the glory of God in Jesus shining forth from the pages of Scripture. And because of seeing His glory, we see Jesus Christ, God's glory in Christ. Jesus is the most important being in the universe. He is our highest joy. He's the infinite treasure. He's what the whole universe is about when we see God's glory in Jesus. So it starts there, seeing God's glory in Jesus. And then second, we must admit, admit that our sin dishonors God and deserves hell. We must admit that. See, when we see God's glory shining in Jesus, we see the wickedness of our sin. Because when we sin, we turn our backs on God. We dishonor God. We proclaim Jesus is nothing. His promises aren't true. He's worthless compared to the world. That's what we say every time we sin. 
And when we do that, we are blaspheming infinite glory. We are mocking the infinitely most valuable glory of the universe every time we sin. So we must admit that our sin dishonors God and deserves hell. Third, we must want to be freed from sin. Picture it like this. Every time or your sin dishonors God, and so it separates you from the joy of knowing God. God is your greatest joy. Knowing God in the person of Jesus is, is the height of joy. Nothing else even comes close. But every time you sin, that sin separates you from your highest joy. And so when you see Jesus' glory, and oh yes, you are my highest joy, it's like, I don't want to sin. I want to be freed from this sin. Because every time you sin, you're put, putting another brick up in the wall between you and the highest joy of the universe, namely knowing God in the person of Jesus. So that's the third part of repentance. We want to be freed from sin because I want Jesus, and sin separates me from Jesus. And then fourth, we must trust Jesus to forgive and free us from sin. The good news is that Jesus was punished on the cross in our place so we can be completely forgiven, past, present, and future. And the good news is that by dying on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. He broke the power of sin in, in your heart. So you can be set free from sin. And so what we must do then is receive Jesus, his sin, guilt-paying death, and his sin-breaking death. We must receive the benefits of his death by trusting him, by relying on him, by depending upon him. That's the fourth step. Now, you might think, well, those four steps, that sounds a lot just like, like faith in Jesus. Faith, isn't, isn't that? And you're right. It does sound a lot like faith in Jesus because that's what faith in Jesus is. Faith and repentance are not two separate actions we take. They're two sides of the same coin. Genuine faith always involves repentance, and genuine repentance always involves faith. So you're right, two sides of the same coin. So here's the question, each one of you, have you repented? Have you repented? And are you repenting? Repentance isn't just something that happens once at the point that you're saved. Repenting is something that happens, for me, it's every day, a couple times a day, most of the time. Every day we need to repent, because every day then, we get to experience afresh the assuring presence of Jesus so we know I'm forgiven. And we feel the sin-breaking power increasing in our hearts so we're seeing sin's power weakening and seeing righteousness growing. So have you repented? And are you repenting? That's the question Jesus wants us asking in this passage. You know, there's a problem. It's not easy to repent. If you've been pursuing sin, like let's say somebody has, has hurt you, maybe somebody at the workplace done something really hurtful to you, and, and you, are, you are mad. I mean, you just, you know, you're, you're grumbling inside of you. You're, you're nurturing this grudge. It's like, I can't believe that they would do that. And you find yourself having imaginary conversations, like they're going to say, blah, 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 and I'm going to say, blah, 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 and I'm going to twist it, and, right? So, so you just, right? 
So at that point to say, you know, you need to repent, it's like, ugh. Because I'm, I'm thick in sin here. I'm enjoying my anger. I'm enjoying thinking of how I'm going to hurt them in some way or whatever. It's not easy to repent, right? Any sin. Whenever we are, are moving into sin and we think we need to repent, it's like, I'm feeling really far from God now. I'm not seeing any of the glory of Jesus. I'm just not there. But here's good news. Jesus will help us repent. So how? How does he help us repent? I think that's one of the points of verses 6 through 9. Look at this parable. So verse 6, he told them this parable. Now, the fact that he just moves right into this parable shows that there's a connection between the previous section where he was talking about repentance and this parable about the fig tree. There's a connection. So we want to be asking ourselves, what's the connection here? Verse 6, he told, them this, he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, since Jesus told this parable, right after calling for repentance, I think that this fig tree bearing fruit is a picture of us repenting. The fig tree bearing fruit is a picture of us bearing fruit of repentance. So let's just walk through this parable. The land owner plants a fig tree, waits three years for it to produce fruit, which is about how long fig trees usually take to produce. But after three years, the fig tree hasn't borne any fruit which is a picture of somebody who's not repenting. And so, cut it down, the landowner says. But the vine dresser urges the landowner to be patient, give it one more year, so the vine dresser can dig around the tree and put fertilizer on it, put manure on it. And after that, if the fig tree still does not produce, it should be cut down, which is a picture of someone facing God's judgment and being cast into hell. Okay, now just, just to pause here, don't make the mistake of thinking that the landowner is like God the Father, kind of impatient, kind of cranky, but the, the vine dresser is Jesus, loving and kind. I mean, that, that's not what's going on here at all. Uh, it's very clear that God the Father and Jesus the Son, all through the Bible, are both perfect in patience and love and compassion. Okay, so make sure we're, we're really clear on that point. So what is the point of the parable? I think there's three points here. I'll mention the first two just briefly, and then we'll camp on the last one a bit more. The first one is, God is patient with us. I mean, think of how many years you lived in sin before repenting. And God was patient, 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 patient. So God is patient understand that very clear another point though is that god will not be patient forever right one more year then cut it down so no one no one should delay repenting no one here should think okay i've got another year that would be a mistake because we none of us knows when it's too late 
And besides, we're missing out on the joy of knowing God now. Who wants another year of emptiness and disappointment when you can have the joy of knowing God? So no one should delay repenting. But there's a third point I want to linger on here, and that is that God helps us repent. Just like the vine dresser digs around the fig tree and puts on manure, so God gives us everything that we need to repent. This is, this is the best news in the world for, for us. So what does that mean in real life? Okay, well, so here's the scenario. You're, you're angry and bitter about something. You're not feeling the glory of Jesus. You're not thinking about how your sin deserves hell. You're just thinking about this person deserves hell for what they did to me, right? That's the whole focus. You're, just, you're bound up in sin. And now you hear Jesus say, you need to repent. And you're thinking, I just don't have that in me right now. You can't pretend. But see, here's the beauty. When we turn to Jesus and say, help me, help me, I even need help to repent. I can't even repent by myself. I need your help to help me repent. He will do everything necessary to enable you to repent. I mean, what a Savior we have in Jesus. This is amazing. You, you come to Him with your angry heart, your frustrated heart, your bitter heart, your hurt heart, your self-pitying heart. You say, Jesus, look at this heart. I, I want to repent. This heart, I don't think this heart's ever going to repent. He'll say, you've come to the right place. I will help you repent. And here's what he will do for us. When we cry out to God, open up his word, he will shine the light of Jesus' glory into our hearts. This is beautiful. I mean, you've experienced this, I'm sure, but you're feeling far from God, you're worried about something, you're discouraged about something, you're bitter at someone, and you just think, I'm going to sit down and you open up the Bible and say, Lord, help me. My heart's just not in this. I'm just, help me change my heart. And as you read over the scriptures and as you pray, Jesus will shine his glory through the pages of the scriptures into your heart and you will start to see Jesus' glory afresh and feel Jesus' glory afresh. He will start the whole repentance process. He will give you everything you need. He's digging up. He's putting manure on. He's watering. He's weeding. He's working, right? And you're just there a tree saying, help, and he will do it. Don't you love Jesus? This is amazing. And then second, when we do see God's glory in Jesus, and by the way, that can take a little bit of time. It can take 30 seconds. It could take longer. For me, it's usually longer, okay? But He will do it. He will always show you His glory when we open up the Scriptures and say, help me. And then second, when we see God's glory again in Jesus, we will see how much our sin does deserve hell because it has so dishonored God. We'll see that. We'll feel that. Third, when we see God's glory in Jesus, we will see, this is my joy. This is home for me. You, knowing you, is everything. And I do not want sin to separate, you anymore, separate me from you anymore. I want to be freed from sin. That's the third step. And that will bring you to the fourth step. When you see his glory, you'll know, I can trust him to forgive me for everything. And I can trust him to bring his power upon me and start to change me. And so, see, he gives you repentance. So, so here are at least two things this morning. One, you must repent. Eternity hangs in the balance. You must repent. And here also, Jesus will help you repent. When you come to him and say, help me. Show me your glory. Soften my heart. Free me from this jealousy or this bitterness or whatever it might be. Help me. He will give you everything you need 
repent. And when you do repent, when you then turn to Jesus and trust him, say, here I am, I want you, forgive me, change me, you will feel afresh the assurance of his forgiveness, and you'll know you're forgiven. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you'll feel his power increasing in your heart, changing your heart, setting you free from that bitterness, that anger, that jealousy, that lust, that greed, whatever it might have been. Jesus calls us to repent, and Jesus enables us to repent. That's what he's calling us to do and to believe. So my call to us, Grace Church, is repent. Repent. Some of you here maybe have never repented of your sin, never really turned to Christ the way we've described here. Today's the day. Jesus loves you. Look at the cross. Look at the power of the resurrection. Look at his glory. Look at his love and his compassion. How can you not trust him? How can you not want him as your prize for the rest of your life? So if you've never repented, repent now. Say, Jesus, help me. Change my heart. Show me your glory. I want to turn from my sin. I want you. I want forgiveness. I want change. He will. He'll meet you right now. And, and for all of us, let's get into a rhythm of repenting daily, moment by moment, as often as we need to. Is there anyone here who has an area of unrepented sin in your heart? Oh, Jesus is talking to you this morning. He loves you. Let the fog that's blinded you so you've held on to that, let that fog get blown away by this passage and repent of that sin. I'm not sure I can. Well, you can't, but he will help you, and then you can. He will help you. So I want to call us to repent. Let's stand together and pray. I pray, Jesus, that you would touch each of our hearts right now. I pray for those who have not yet in their life come to a place where they have repented, and I pray that right now they would be crying out to you and asking you for help and that you would help them and change their hearts and save them. Any of us here who've been walking with you but now we're holding on to some unrepented sin, God, I pray that you would convict us of that strongly now so that now, today, would be a day of change and a new break with that sin as we're asking you for help, that you would do that in our hearts now, I pray. And Lord, thank you that you not only call us to repent, but you promise to help us to repent. What a glorious Savior you are. We worship you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.